Ivan Zhang is the CEO of Pennyworks, a financial platform that takes your investment to new heights. Ivan is an expert in blockchain, Web3, DeFi, investing and entrepreneurship. This episode, you will hear Ivan's unique perspective and experiences in these exciting and rapidly evolving industries. So I heard about it around the same time. Uh, I think back then there was uh, an exchange called like Fort Knox or something like that. The coins traded around. Yeah. Tw- so that was a little bit before. They were contemporaneous, but there was Fort Knox and there was Mt. Gox. And there was like a hack or something and Bitcoin went down from like $25 to $8. And uh, that's when I first learned about it. I all like from that moment on, I thought it was just very interesting. But, you know, with new things, it kind of definitely is a bumpy road. So uh, I did set up a trading account at Mt. Gox and had to like send money to Japan and everything to get traded. So definitely super early days. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Mt. Gox went belly uh, up, uh, I think, in the 13 or late 13 or 14. So that was my first foray into crypto. Uh, definitely, there wasn't much to do back then, right? Like you couldn't, like other than just send Bitcoins around. It wasn't like there were smart contracts. That wasn't even invented back then. But you can see the appeal, right? It's like uh, decentralized financial services and transfer systems and stuff like that. So we, it was pretty clear that we would get something more than just, uh, you know, sending Bitcoins around. And that's when essentially Ethereum come over uh, in like, what, 14, 15, I would say. Uh, and with smart contracts, that's actually the tools you need to build an entire kind of business of value proposition straight into the blockchain, right? Because otherwise, if you just send money back and forth, that's not sufficient to, to you know, operate automatically without a trusted uh, party. And so when Ethereum came around, it was super exciting for us. I wanted to learn more about it. And so I started mining uh, Ethereum uh, as a result. And I thought it was a cool project. You could buy graphics cards and, you know, uh, that was kind of a DIY. You can build your own computer. Those are things that, you know, I did as my, in my youth for completely unrelated reasons because I wanted to play video games. And I was like, hey, look, that skill set is actually going to be able to make me some money. Uh, so we started a company to do that, and this was in 2016. And it just kind of grew from there. We wanted to uh, see how big we could get it. We eventually grew that to a megawatt scale facility uh, with thousands of CPUs and GPUs. Uh, so we were in it for kind of uh, ever since the beginning, and definitely it's been a very bumpy road in terms of price exploding and crashing back and forth multiple times. And when DeFi came along in 2000. And 19, I would say, like uh, late 18, early 19, that's when you can see, hey, look, this is an actual financial product, right? People can actually borrow against the crypto. And then you have collateralized lending. That's a pretty decent business. In fact, that's where most of the banking sector is, right? Banks kind of just lend against good collateral, which are, you know, houses or cars and things like that. So if you could do the same thing on the blockchain, you could potentially, you know, maybe not like, you know, overnight, but eventually you'd be able to supplant a big swath of the financial services and the value that they provide. And instead of having tons of human intermediaries, banks, branches, regulators, you just have these smart contracts, which, you know, instead of uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it'd be like pennies on the dollar. Right? Yeah. And so we'll say, well, so you- look, that's, that's where we need to start the company. And that's where we got Pennyworks. Yeah, so you've been in the space for you know the longest time, and I think the thing is where crypto has gone from kind of obscure kind of 
edge culture type thing. Now it's, you know, so mainstream. Everyone knows the word Bitcoin. If they're really kind of treading into the space, they'll know Ethereum. They might know the words DeFi and all that kind of stuff. But I think I, the, the problem I'm finding is the people that do know a little bit, they all just think, oh, everything's a scam. You know, it's this, it's that, whatever. But I think we're in a, a stage now where people are open to being educated about it, especially because they see it as somewhat of an investment opportunity. But the way I try to phrase it to people is it's it's a changing of money from, you know, what we know as notes and, you know, coins into the digital world. So I'm always kind of curious when I meet someone who's working in the, in the blockchain and the crypto space or the DeFi space, how do you kind of, convert the unconverted people what do you say to them how do you kind of get them up to speed with what pennyworks is and how it could benefit their life uh it definitely is a challenge i think it's um well to put it into context you have to go back into history a little bit which is that back then but when i mean back then maybe over 100 years ago plus there were also banks but a lot of people did keep their money themselves you always had the option to just have the money, right? Uh, you know, under the bed or something like that. Not the safest option, but it was a bearer asset, right? You had gold, you had silver, you had coins. Uh, obviously, you had houses and things like that. But you are the one that was the custodian of the asset. Now, once uh, the United States went off the gold standard, and you no longer had this one-to-one -one relationship with underlying gold as a claim that, uh, that of your dollar papers. Uh, it became uh, much more natural for custodians to step in and uh, facilitate the management of the assets, right? So it's only been the last 50 years or so where people have been getting comfortable with the idea that there's always a third party that's the one that's safeguarding your assets. You don't personally hold uh, those uh, you know, uh, funds, right? You don't have stock certificates. People used to have them and shuffle them around like real money. People don't do that anymore, right? Like there'll be people that would do deals and they'll fly a private jet. Why? Because they have a suitcase that was literally full out of cash or these certificates that represented cash. So it's not a foreign concept that people can never get around to it. But the idea is that once you get into this way where money is essentially digitized, and it's essentially just the book records that the bank keeps on your behalf, then they can do a lot of cool things with it, right? They can enforce uh, inflation measures. They can uh, do... All these other policies that can say all of a sudden, hey, look, we're going to take a haircut on your on your bank deposits. Now that hasn't happened in in the United States or most of the other developed economies, but like you know, even the financial crisis, Cyprus did that, right? So they're like, hey, look, you're a depositor, we're just going to haircut your your balances, and they're like, well, that's not okay, right? All I asked you to do is to be a steward of of my money. I didn't I didn't say that I was actually neutralizing losses for somebody else, right? Now, in practice, that's what a bank does. I mean, they're not like a nonprofit organization. They make money by taking your money and reinvesting it, right? And so it's really not that much different from that. It's like we are rebuilding the financial system from the ground up, but with more transparency and control on your behalf. So you can always choose to use the traditional financial system. It's still there. But now you have the additional option to opt out if there are certain things that don't make sense to you, right? So imagine if you know Bitcoin and Ethereum and smart contracts were developed in the 2007 or 2008 timeframe, then there are a lot of options where people could say, well, I don't feel like holding my money in the banks and they could pull it out. And then that would no longer fuel the massive amount of financial engineering and the excess that happened from investment banking uh, you know, uh, and that fueled the great financial crisis. 
So there's a counterbalancing force there, right? Right now, without crypto, you're essentially locked into the financial system. You don't have a choice. The money cannot go anywhere. If you take your money out, you're still putting it in some other bank, unless you're actually going to put it under your mattress, which is really not a really viable, scalable solution for regular businesses or even financial institutions, right? So it's really just, you're not making it worse. You're not making it different. It's an additional option that gives you more control if you want to be a money power user. Yeah, no, most definitely. I think people are coming to that understanding of, you know, how banks work and they're realizing that, you know, there, there was always this common thing when we, when, you know, I say when we, well, when I was younger, people go, oh, you can go to the bank and you can hand in this note and get gold. And it's like, as you get older, you realize that was, you know, decades ago that you could do that. It doesn't exist anymore. It's all just, like you said, entries in an Excel spreadsheet or en entries in a, a, you know, a database. That's all it is. Whereas with, you know, I believe for me personally, what I believe with crypto is, is that, you know, there is value there because we've agreed there's value there. And you can also track where that value has been transferred to. And, you know, that's a much better way for things to be than for the banks to kind of be like, oh, don't worry, we'll take care of that for you. You know, you, you can physically go and look on the blockchain for yourself and, and see what's going on. But yeah, in the idea of, of transparency and, you know, the, the way that crypto works, one thing I would be curious to know is you said you built a crypto farm. What was that process like because you know back then nobody knew what was going on nobody knew how this could pan out so talk me through you know the first couple years of that and then uh, do you still own it or did you end up getting rid of it so uh, obviously mon gox was not a great experience i'm actually hoping to get some money back sometime this year so it only took a good nine to ten years for the bankruptcy process to happen but it was also super unusual for those that are not aware. Mt. Gox in 2012-13 was essentially the exchange that processed 80% of all transactions. And back then, you couldn't do anything other than just trade Bitcoin. So it was kind of a janky website. It was based in Japan. You had to actually wire your money out there. So there's really little recourse. And like if things went bad, I had to call like the corresponding bank was like Mitsubishi USP or something. And it was all in Japanese and they had to find somebody in English to speak to me. It was kind of chaotic back then when, when uh, Mangox went down. So unfortunately I had a big part of my uh, coins locked in there, but it's also ironic because if I didn't get it stuck there, I'd probably have sold it. Right. And it would have been what, like uh, you know, a few hundred dollars or something, a coin or something like that. So I didn't have a lot in there, but definitely it uh, shows you the irony here is that you're buying an asset, which is supposed to give you trustless custody, and you leave it on the exchange. And the point is, I was actually on the exchange for the purpose of selling it so that I can get back the money. And I just didn't have time to do that by the time it blew up. Um, so definitely uh, it was a shock, but it wasn't like, a, you know, oh man, this crypto thing is a scam, right? The irony is that the scam was the traditional financial service provider. Uh, Bitcoin works still just as advertised. And so when we looked into it, it was like, well, look, what's going to be the next evolution of just sending value, right? So the key value proposition of having the blockchain is that it replicates another feature that was lost when you digitalize something, right? You have a picture, it's nice when you replicate it and you send it to somebody, other people can see it. But what you're losing is that scarcity, which means that if you give it to somebody, you no longer have it. But if I send you an email, I still have the email. Somebody else has the email. All the people that process your, the communication also have a copy of the email. So the digital scarcity was a physical characteristic that's lost when you convert things to digital form. And essentially, blockchain technology allows you to replicate that feature again for digital assets, right? 
Now, whether or not the digital asset has any merit, like whether it's Dogecoin and people just speculate on it or whether there's Ethereum or that stuff, that's kind of secondary. It's just that we have this layer now that you can do something that has a better attribute above and beyond just the digitization of information. So for me, it was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Once Ethereum came out with smart contracts, I thought, well, this is going to be what's going to be powering the uh, cryptocurrency, well, not even cryptocurrency, but blockchain ecosystem, right? Because you have all these apps that they can communicate. And the best thing is when they communicate, they literally are just like uh, computer code, right? So uh, if you're familiar with software design, a lot of the stuff, you're not building 95% of uh, any particular application. You're using these pre-built libraries, like literally every single day you're standing on the shoulder of giants, right? You could write like a five-line application and then like when you actually compile and build the thing, it's like hundreds of megabytes. Why? It's because other people wrote these thousands and thousands of other lines so that you could just use their library and write this one-liner that would just build out this whole thing, right? And so it's the same idea here that potentially you could have these very small, very simple modularized components that are like financial microservices and you could just compose them over time to get more and more uh, complicated applications. And that's literally what happened in 2020 and 2021 with the advent of collateralized lending, with all these yield farming. Now, a lot of the stuff is also a little bit recursive and some of them are a lot more like pump and dump and less more of like a macroeconomic meaningful use. But the, the idea and the, and the structures and the mechanism have been built up so that people can actually do this easily. So over time, there's going to be more mature uses of these things. People will, will now say, hey, instead of I'm using this to just pump my coin, there's a legitimate reason I'm using this because this feature XYZ will benefit from having this technology, right? And so over time, I've been much more excited about smart contracts and all the blockchains that are able to power smart contracts to be able to do uh, advanced computations in financial services. So I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm not an Ethereum maximalist. But what I am saying is that I am pro additional enhancements to make the uh, potential technology more versatile, more resilient, and more user-friendly. Mm. And so in that kind of like, you know, way of thinking and that way of being, you've, you've got your company Pennyworks. Yeah. And that is there to, is it, is it like a saving platform? Like how, how can the, the average person get like a kind of, you know, one line understanding of what Pennyworks is and why they should have a look into Pennyworks. So it's basically like lazy's lazy man's DeFi fixed income, right? right. So the nice thing about uh, the blockchain is that it's permissionless. So anybody can use it. You can do it. I don't have any special sauce. I'm just saying I'm helping you do it because there's a lot of mechanics out there that are still not uh, as user-friendly as you'd like to be. Uh, just as you mentioned before, tons of people got hacked on FTX, they left their funds there, and then so they don't have it anymore, right? And so the pitfalls of using crypto is that it's still a highly manual process. Like imagine back in the days when you used to have to connect the internet with the modem. It's very cumbersome. It took up the landline, somebody called you, you dropped the, the connection. So we're pretty much at that time right now. In terms of you being able to manage it, there are a lot more extensions that make it user-friendly, sometimes too user-friendly, right? And because it's digital, people don't really understand the safety distinctions between one app versus another app. Why do you have a hardware wallet? What does it do? Why is it not the same as a software wallet? How does it distinction? You actually need to understand some basic computer science or information technology and systems to know the differentiation as to what is the value proposition that you get there. So what we do is we provide a compliant uh, security interface 
for people to get the benefits of DeFi without any of the work. Uh, now, besides the convenience part, there's also a legal up, a component to it because uh, in the United States, uh, most of these things are regulated security. We are actually a security. So, you know, there are regulations under that we have to follow to be very strict about how to manage uh, the in terms of uh, KYC, AML, things like that. But the nice thing of being a security is that, uh, at least in the United States, you could potentially invest in this through tax advantage accounts, which means like retirement accounts. So not only are you getting DeFi yield uh, income, which is meaningfully higher than traditional finance, but you'll be able to get this in a tax-free or tax-deferred way. And you can only do that uh, because you're investing in a security. If you do this yourself using your own hardware wallet and stuff like that, you would not be eligible for that kind of accounting treatment. So essentially it's trying to get more mass adoption by putting up a more compliant interface, but also an easier user interface for people to access the benefits. So that's not an abstract thing. It's not like, oh, only people that are DGEN that buys NFTs or people that want to massively speculate on Dogecoin. They're not just for those people. This is a financial services platform for everybody. Right. So, you know, it's, it's part well actually there's a word for it already sorry it's a fintech company but yes. you know a fintech company of the future so did you raise money to to build this out or like how did how have you funded yourself that's right so we we raised uh you know through friends and family as well as angel funding so and we put in a meaningful amount of capital ourselves to do this so that's kind of how we started um you know, the plan was to make sure that we have the ability to operate for a few years and be able to realize our, our goals, right? So we be able to, we launched in April of uh, 22. And so we've been in operation for about um, nine months now so far. Cool. And so you're the CEO of the company. That's right. And this is your first time being the CEO of a company. Well, we have a few companies. So for example, uh, I mentioned that we had the mining facility, right? So there was a company mm. there. Um, that we operated for many years, uh, but yeah, it's essentially a, you know the formal title, I suppose. CEO, it's probably the first time, yeah, as a first-time yeah. startup founder, so to speak. Talk me through the, the process of being a, a CEO at a fintech company. You know, what what does your average week look like? What happens? Is it all back-to-back meetings? Is it you're lost in emails? How how does that look? Well, it, it it's it's a little bit more. Um, multidisciplinary, right? So previous to doing the startup, uh, I was in a traditional financial firm. So you had very uh, clearly defined roles, uh, very, you know, uh, uh, niche kind of uh, responsibilities, right? So it was much more regular. I think the nice thing about doing a startup is you get to meet a lot more people. Uh, so I would say that in the last 10 years prior to doing the startup, I met about the same amount of people I've met in the last year and a half when I did the startup uh, because you're just connecting with potential vendors, potential clients, potential partners, and all of a sudden that opens up the world to you. So it's very exciting from that front. Um, it's uh, in terms of the startup life cycle, because things change quickly, you're essentially you know switching. I wouldn't say you're simultaneously putting up a lot of hats, but you're definitely switching a lot. So at the beginning, you'll be much more on the design and uh you know, product uh, development phase, you know, and then later on, you'd be much more focused on marketing, maybe infrastructure, maybe sales. So those are things that, you know, uh, an average person probably only exposed to one small slice of this. And, you know, that was the same thing for me. I was much more on the quantitative and technical aspects of it. 
And, uh, you know, part of being a sort of founder means that you get launched into all the other aspects of it, which is showing up at uh, conferences, talking to people, marketing sales. And they're all just interesting experiences to learn. And it just, uh, you know, grows your own human capital. That's kind of where my mindset is, right? That uh, um, you get the opportunity to get to experience all these different roles uh, while still doing something that's really interesting for you. Okay. And were you a solo founder or did you have a co-founder? Because there's like a ton of research and basically anybody who has built a, you know, a multi-million or billion dollar company is always like, you need someone else there, whether that's, you know, your wife or a friend or somebody you've met along the way that has, you know, the skills that, that meet the gaps that you might have. So I'm just wondering, do you have a co-founder? Uh, I do. Actually, I think there is a book that, that uh, talks about like uh, some research as to Oh, uh, you know, like what they do is they have two cohorts, right? One of the, the ones that go to unicorn status and the ones that don't. And then they see like all the characteristics. So he goes over a thousand of these characteristics. And one of them is whether you're a solo founder and, and um, or you have a partner. And I think the research was kind of like indeterminate. Like it wasn't materially different whether you had a co-founder or not. But I would say that maybe on the financial perspective, if it's not materially different, that's fine. But on, on the psychological perspective, it is huge to go at it alone versus going at it with a partner. So I, from day one, went in with my uh, lifelong college friend and uh, you know we've been working together as well, uh, starting from college all the way to uh, traditional finance and then you know in our mining facility, we've done tons of projects together. And if it wasn't for being able to do the startup with him and us basically controlling our environment and building up our own thing, I don't think I would have the ability to do it myself. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's tough. Sometimes, you know, something happens and you feel like the world is ending. If it's just yourself, it's much harder to deal with it. But if you have somebody to talk to, it's a definitely different perspective. And uh, you might actually, it helps you center and then focus your, your abilities, but also makes you less prone to a lot of these kind of pitfalls where, uh, you know, there's nobody else to bounce ideas off of. I'm curious whether you you're able to or you would like to tell me about a time where things were difficult and you were able to turn to your your college friend and and you know work your way through those those problems at pennyworks yeah so for example like when we, we started we were thinking that we were going to do something that's going to be a hundred percent consumer uh, based products so or b2c and the reason for that obviously because there's just about more people right in the b2c space uh, but uh, in the middle of the section, uh, you know, when we first started doing the, uh, the project, uh, it was pretty clear that like a lot of the B2C platforms in terms of their regulation and their, their perspective on the legal standing of their product wasn't quite up to snuff, right? And so we had to pivot. And so that was a kind of a tar- hard decision, uh, but we had to basically focus our platform to be limited to accrediting investors to conform to the U.S. private office security laws that we're operating under. So those are challenges where you say, oh, you know, we, we thought we were going to do A, but like having to pivot, um, it, it does a hard decision to make by yourself. And so definitely have somebody else in the signing board saying whether this is going to be okay, whether it makes sense, whether, you know, uh, that's something that uh, uh, when you talk to somebody else, it just doesn't seem as, as, as crazy or as insane as when you initially just think about it in your head, right? So, so definitely that makes it more grounded, makes it easier for you to make decisions. And uh, you know, the weird thing about doing a startup um, as opposed to being an employee, and I think it's pretty obvious until you actually do it, is that when you're an employee, you don't have to worry too much about it. You know, 
you just do what other people tell you. And the more you do that, the more you're rewarded for it, right? But in a startup, it's much more open-ended. You can do just about anything. There's really no wrong answer what you do. You can pivot. You can do another business. You can hire somebody else to help you do the business. You can do it yourself. You know, there's so many variations to, to solve any particular problem. And that's where the challenge is, right? And then every time you make a decision, obviously a lot of mistakes and you have to own up to that fact. Was as an employee, so well, you told me what you did. That's great. You know, I earned my wages and I'm done with that, right? So the scope of those responsibilities is dramatically different. Uh, which makes it a harder. So a lot of people, when they're thinking or romanticizing about the startup, you get a lot more freedom, but it's more than upset by the amount of responsibility that's put on you to make sure that uh, you're directing your resources uh, correctly. Yeah. And you, you touched on something there that I would kind of want to hear more about. You know, you had yourself, you had your co-founder, but you also spoke about having that whole employee mindset and, you know, being kind of like doing what you're told. But you said in a startup, that's completely different. So I'm wondering, you know, you started out just the two of you. How did you work out on building the team? Because you mentioned you had the whole startup life cycle. So, you know, you're, when you're at the beginning, you're developing your product. What was the first person you hired and why? Like, how did you find them? Where did you find them? And what made them stand out to you that they should be a part of your business? Yeah, so uh, we're pretty technical. So I, I wouldn't say that we did it the super right way because I think now <laughs> we're uh, understanding much better like how to scale up a business faster. But, you know, get started, right? Uh, better than the hypothesizing about things. So when we first started, like, you know, it's pretty obvious that we had a vision of what we wanted to build. And so we need help building that out. Uh, we are highly technical. We do a lot of development ourselves, but even development is now split into various disciplines. There's uh, systems engineering, uh, software reliability, uh, systems reliability. Uh, there's front-end UI, UX, and then there's also back-end and databases. All these things that a larger company could be, you know, separate departments, separate roles and things like that. So for us, we're pretty uh, comfortable with development, but uh, we didn't have any experience with design and the front end and making an app for people because we just built these automated system and just runs, right? And so one of the few first people that we needed help with was a designer. And uh, you know that's kind of where we wanted to get that focus on. So, hey, look, this is usability. is a consumer-focused application. is not a, a systems-to-systems kind of engineering project. And so we need to make something that is uh, very comfortable for people to use, very straightforward, um, and less kind of minimize the complexity and just emphasize on the functionality. Um, so that's kind of how we kind of started off in terms of our, uh, uh, you know, uh, startup journey. And what size is the is the team now? So we we grew the company to probably like ten people, and then now we had. Uh, to reduce some of the staff because of recent, you know, FTX fallout, uh, crypto winter. So, you know, definitely uh, it's been a wild ride for us. Yeah, I, I was. that's why I asked because I know a lot of the major big companies are, are scaling back. Even tech companies are scaling back. And, you know, the, the thing is everybody's right in a bull market, but in a bear market, it's all those people that know, you know, what parts to scale down in and what parts to kind of maintain is, is the people that will succeed, you know? Yeah, so there's there's one dimension to that. There's another dimension that people don't appreciate is because we are a financial services company, it's actually risk management is very important, right? Mm. So some of the much larger competitors in our space, uh, unfortunately, they just blew up and went bankrupt. So it's not even just about like a scaling up or scaling down, it's about just, do you actually have a functional business model that will carry you forward? And from the very first day, we were focused on 
over Clara's lending only, which is pretty much the most conservative thing you can do in the crypto space or even in actually traditional finance, right? And we were 100% focused on making sure that these investments were managed on the blockchain um, from the get-go. So it wasn't like us having to call people to get collateral or something like that. And the benefit of that is, you know, uh, crypto has drawn down like 70, 80% from the highs and we continue to operate, you know, with no hiccups, but uh, all of our major competitors have gone belly up, right? And so that, that part of it is not a software engineering issue. It's not a user experience issue. It's really from the fact that, you know, we've been in financial services for over a decade before we even started this crypto company, you know, so we were aware of blockchain technology, but, uh, you know, risk management actually is a core value proposition that you're providing users when you're providing financial products, right? Uh, that mm. they're really trusting you as a steward of like the, the funds that they place with you. So those are things where people say, hey, look, I'm going to build a software and it's going to just facilitate a pass through to DeFi. I'm just going to collect a fee in the middle and that's going to be done. Well, that's not really it, right? There's a lot more responsibility to it. And unfortunately, uh, most of the major players in this ecosystem has kind of, have kind of blew it, uh, you know, to say it mildly. And, uh, you know, it's a huge reputational damage on the entire crypto industry, honestly. It probably sets us back a few years, which I'm very disappointed. But, you know, just like you've seen it uh, or you've encountered it first in 2012, it's pretty clear that we're, we want to play the long game. So will there be crypto in five years? Uh, probably. Will it be higher or lower than now? I don't know. But will there be more tools, better user interface, better performance, more scalable, resilient systems? Absolutely. So the technology part is up only. That's kind of the way you think about it, right? Okay, the price went up, price went down, things will change. But the libraries of you know, code and modular uh, microservices, all these design things that are being built up over the years, even in open source software, which we were very early adopters, this was like you know, 20 plus years ago, um, that took a while to get a stride, right? Because you have one thing that's built up on another, and it's not obvious that there's a huge impact, but what happens is these kind of add up. And that's where you get this exponential growth, which could be very slow at the beginning, but then it accelerates much faster. So one example of this that's not crypto specific was uh, the shift to using Python, which is a pretty powerful language and very versatile. And But it was more like a general purpose, kind of you can build some scripts, you can build some systems in there, but it wasn't a data analytics platform. Right. And then there is this other language called R, which was specifically for statistical analysis. And all the people that built these nice libraries to do nice specific statistical toolkits, they all like, you know, some of the people publish papers. Like, hey, look, we published this paper about this new method. And by the way, we coded up a corresponding R library that you can use right now by downloading it. Right. And that gave way to essentially massive rapid adoption of uh, the R language to be able to power through more and more data analytics tools that people were using in financial companies or even traditional companies, right? However, R was very slow. And so for us in 2010, it was pretty obvious that, look, you need to switch. And are we able to switch to a general programming language uh, like uh, Python? that would both massively boost performance for non-statistical analytics tools. But once you get a critical mass of the libraries and modular components that you can use, you can see huge adoption because now you have this one toolkit that can do all these things as opposed to having to learn two or three different languages to get a product built, right? 
And so the same thing that transformation could happen in, in crypto where we have meaningful and useful abstractions now for certain sets of financial services. In three to five years' time, we're going to have a lot more of those things. And I don't even know when it's going to click, but sometimes something is going to click. Maybe three or five or 10 of these components will finally line up. And then there's going to be a super app that's going to be able to leverage those things. And then it will be so obvious where everyone's like, well, why haven't we thought about this before? Uh, and once you get there, that's when you'll see, see the mass adoption. Yeah, I, I think the the moment that mass adoption comes, it will be, you know, either through something like CBDCs, which is, you know, for the person who doesn't know about that, that's <clears> the, like centralized digital bank currencies or something close to that where, you know, banks have their own crypto stuff. And, uh, you know, that will be just through sheer, you know, force that people will have to use these things, not, in, you know, in an oppressive way, but people will be interacting with blockchain technology without really knowing it. And, you know, I think it's one of those ones where even now people aren't educated about, you know, money in general. So to be, you know, educated on a completely new financial product is really in everyone's best interest. But at the same time, you know, you can't force people to to do something that's so new and so, so different to them right now, you know? So on, on the topic of CBDC, it's pretty interesting. So um, right now, most financial services are built like a, like a pyramid, right? And, and, and the way you think about this is you have these like small regional banks, right? And they really are just regular businesses that have bank accounts, a larger, you know, money center banks. And then these banks on the middle of the hierarchy uh, all have accounts at the central bank, right? So a CBDC, the only difference is that instead of having this ladder where all the money has to funnel upwards to the central bank, each individual has a direct account at the central bank. There are some good uh, pros and cons of that, right? The pro is that you don't have to worry about bank failures anymore because you can just always keep your cash at the central bank. The central banks all have to print money. There's never going to be a run on the central bank. Uh, but the problem with that is that then a lot of commercial banks, it used to be that you had to go through them <laughs> to get to the central bank. So they always had a nice pool of deposit they can use to fund their projects, right? So their mortgage loans, their auto loans, their commercial real estate loans. Uh, and, you know, in the United States, case in point, a lot of banks still, you know, checking accounts offer zero, even though Fed funds rates are 4%. That's not going to happen anymore, right? If you had a central bank, uh, then they were offering a, a central bank rate. There's no way that any institution will be able to offer a uh, checking account that's at a lower rate, which will actually force the banks to be more competitive. So that's actually a good thing, right? To be like, well, if we really want to fight for these deposits, you have to give uh, additional value to users. That's the pro part. The con part is something that could potentially be a lot more sinister, but it hasn't happened yet because this doesn't exist. Right, the sinister part of it is like, well, if the Fed has a very fine granularity control of your financial asset, they can say, hey, look, we're going to stimulate the economy. We're going to give you a coupon. Right? And what is that? It's like basically it's like cash, but you have to use it in the next two weeks or whatever, or before the quarter end. You can see how that happens. Right? Like, you know, just like a lot of mm. uh, stores will give you these coupons that you have to buy, and there's a lot of these deals at quarter end because they have to make their financial targets. Imagine if you had a direct access to the central bank, the bank could do something like that. Or the reverse, it says, well, you know what? If you're not using your money, you're going to lose it. But that would be, you know, obviously politically very fraught. But the idea is that they'll have a lot more direct control of your money to build these new methods of control. It's not that they have to. It's just that they will just have it by, by de facto as a result of you adopting a central bank currency. 
And so that could be uh, for the force of good or that could be for the force of evil, just like technology is. Uh, you know, we have the internet and that could be means uh, more information sharing, but that could also mean more surveillance, right? And so that's kind of the situation that we're in uh, with the central bank, uh, you know, focused currency. Uh, but the alternative is, hey, look, we'll have a decentralized one, right? So we have a lot of decentralized assets. Unfortunately, they are not used for the measure of uh, a unit of account, right? So a lot of properties of money, right? Medium exchange, store of value, but also unit of account. And that's the important one because Bitcoin is a store of value. Right, it goes up and goes down. Most people don't pay stuff in Bitcoin. But even more importantly, nothing is quoted in Bitcoin, right? Mm. Like if I was quoting a house to say now it's worth like 100 Bitcoins. Now, if Bitcoin goes down, I'm going to change the price in Bitcoin. That's because in reality, it's denominated in dollars or whatever it is. And you're just converting it to Bitcoin. It's, the more you get a true uh, unit of account in that currency, that's when you're going to expect more adoption um, as an actual currency. So, for example, the first uh, unit of account that's massively adopted would be for NFTs, right? So, a lot of people buy and sell NFTs. You can do that with a stable coin, but most people quote NFTs in the native blockchain dollar. So, if you are like on OpenSea, most transactions happen in Ethereum. So, now Ethereum is the unit of account. So, it doesn't matter if Ethereum value goes up or down. Most people are looking at the price of these their board ape uh, yacht club. Uh, you know, and if these are, hey, look, it's worth, you know, 60th, right? So 60th is 60th. doesn't matter if 68 went up, 68 went down, it's still 60th. The price hasn't moved. So over time, if people are using the digital asset uh, natively for medium exchange and unit of account, that's when we're going to be able to see a lot more uh, space for growth. Yeah, I, I, there's, a, there's a phrase out there where some, I don't remember who said it, but someone's been banging on about it. it might be Michael Saylor. He was like, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. You know, that, that's that's basically it. You know, you can't say, oh, one Bitcoin is worth X amount of dollars. It's like the dollar goes up and down in value too. Bitcoin is always Bitcoin, which is, you know, I, I think where we'll end up at some point, hopefully. But, you know, yeah. where we're at right now, yeah, people literally just have it like, oh, the price is up, the price is down, the price is up, the price is down. But it's like, the quantity is still the same. If you have one, you have one. If you have two, you have two. If you have three, you have three. And that's the kind of space I feel like we'll be we'll be entering in the next, you know, five, ten, you know, fifteen years maybe. So there's I'm, like a yeah, go. There's a cool story like uh, <clears throat> apparently it's a, a, some it's not a person I know directly, but there's a story of this guy that basically, you know, uh, found Bitcoin. It was like in uh, late sixteen, early seventeen. And, and you know, apparently they were a pretty decent, decent successful person. They had like a few million, a few million dollars. They basically cashed out and moved to uh, Puerto Rico, which in the United States is uh, tax-free capital gains for all the stuff that they do there. So there's some special uh, uh, tax incentives there. And they started trading, but the important thing is that they denominated everything in Bitcoin. So it wasn't that they were doing a strategy that was massively different than other people, but they considered a win if you got more Bitcoin at the end of the day than when you started, right? So regardless of the dollar value of the Bitcoin. And that fundamentally changed the way it, like his portfolio returns were because, you know, like he eventually grew this to apparently like a billion dollar. But probably 90% of the returns was the fact that everything was held in Bitcoin and not in dollars, right? Uh, so yes, they probably made a lot of money doing uh, trading, which was, you know, adding the value. But it's the fact that their unit of account for their fund was Bitcoin, right? And so that's how they 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 were able to outperform just by anybody else. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, me and you have, or probably you more than me, have a, a decent level of understanding. And, you know, over the course of this conversation, hopefully the listeners got a few things that they can kind of go research and a few things that they, you know, have come to understand now through through us talking. But I'm curious for you, you know, we, we said that, you know, CBDCs will be a thing in the future. What else do you see, you know, being popular in the blockchain and crypto space? So I think it was unfortunate. I, I would have hoped that GameFi would have been more popular. And to, to just elaborate on that, you know, uh, ever since like EVE Online, which was in the early 2000s, massively uh, multiplayer online RPG, you could buy stuff for a character to make it more powerful, rare items, so on and so forth. So you could just trade it with people, you know, for gold or like real dollars, right? The people like on eBay, be like, oh, I'm selling this like, you know, sort of stamina plus five or something. I was like, what is this? It's not real. And people mm. complain about it because it's not physical. And so now, you know, so it's not that like Bitcoin did something that was fundamentally different that, that wasn't already an example of. Or Counter-Strike, they have these skins. Uh, and the skins actually had no functional difference. It's not like you were like able to shoot faster. It was just different, right? So it was rarer, but it had no like uh, attribute that conferred you better abilities inside the game. And people would just buy and sell them for a lot of money. And the game companies were begrudgingly kind of, they knew that this existed, but they wouldn't facilitate it. And part of the reason it was in the United States, there's money transmitter laws. You can't really like create like a online trading system for arbitrary goods like that without being licensed as a money transmitter. So they were, you know, we were just game, game developer. They wouldn't want to be able to like, oh, we're also a financial services company, right? Um, so they had these like a uh, background, like, uh, you know, auction systems that were on eBay or off game, right. That would kind of do this. And you have these gold farmers in China, which be like just sitting there 18 hours a day. And they knew where to place in the game or each server that give you the most gold and they just harvest the gold and then they'll sell the gold for real dollars. And you can see how that this goes, right? So the, the, the buying and selling of digital assets is something that predated the existence of, um, the blockchain. But the th nice thing about blockchain is that now you don't have to have this clunky hack to do this whole thing. All you have to do is just register the assets on the blockchain and everything else already exists. There are decentralized exchanges, decentralized lending platforms, and then obviously you can trade with uh, people by sending them uh, you know, the actual NFT versus the, the, the money or whatever. So on a technological perspective, it makes so much sense that if you were already doing this with your game or whatever, that you would translate this to the blockchain. Both it absolves you from the responsibility because you're not the one doing it. It's the blockchain technology is a decentralized platform, but it also creates a better user experience because people are now more able to get into the game and not worry that, oh, what if they shut down the server? I spent like 500 bucks on this character. If they shut down the server, it's all gone, right? Or if they have this weird like terms of service policy, whatever, you get banned. You have no recourse, right? So now the idea that if uh, a game can be built on top and uses sensibly blockchain technology to enable the actual assets to be created on the blockchain and be transferred on the blockchain, that could create a massively better user experience. But for example, Final Fantasy, like, you know, like so many series now, but now you have tons of these assets. It's much harder to make a new version of this. And by the way, we can't transfer the assets across. People expect that you'll be able to because like, well, look, I invested like 500 hours on this. Right. So it's already a huge challenge that's facing games. And now you have a solution. But unfortunately, because of for some reason, the media has been perceiving this as like a negative. And part of the reason was 
that most of the NFTs were traded on Ethereum, and this was you know last year. And Ethereum was a proof of work system, which means that there's tons of these GPUs machines that were basically co-opted from gamers to the service of uh, the Ethereum blockchain, causing gamers to have massive amount of higher costs for their graphics cards, um, which obviously made, made them angry. Um, but the nice thing is that in September of last year, uh, Ethereum had the upgrade, it was the merge, and essentially converted from a proof of work system to proof of stake. And fundamentally, that reduced the power usage 99.9% and essentially made the mining, GPU mining, completely obsolete. Now, all of a sudden, you have an excess supply of graphics cards, but it also means that the blockchain itself is green, right? So I'm not like, hey, look, I just, you know, sold my, you know, sword of vitality for like, you know, $50, but I also spent like, you know, five metric tons of CO2, you know, emissions to do that. Now you can say this is as complicated as just a regular operation on a computer, on a server, whatever. Um, so there's no longer that argument that it's not environmentally friendly or that you're destroying the planet if you're playing games and using blockchain technology. So in my mind, those main hurdles and talking points have uh, kind of uh, been unblocked. It's just a matter of finding that game that's going to be like, wow, right? Because it's not really about the fact that it's a blockchain game. It's really that there's a game and then on the side, you have this e economy that is actually fully decentralized. So you can have even better ownership of it. So if we find that game that people love playing just because the game is awesome, then that is going to propel the next wave of adoption. Because you have one game that does it very successfully. There's no reason why you can't make hundreds of millions of dollars on this. And then you'll have tons of copycats that follow suit. So I'm seeing that that could be a potential development, but it highly depends on like the social media sentiment, which, you know, uh, at least for now is still fairly negative. Yeah. Uh, and the, the main problem I have with GameFi is the, the whole play to earn or move to earn movement relies on, you know, you coming in and buying an <laughs> NFT and then you want to sell that NFT to somebody else in order to get your payout. When realistically, if we look at how traditional games are, if you spend money on a traditional game, the only value you have in that game is, you know, it's either selling your whole account as one thing or selling the, you know, the physical disc, you know, back when that was a thing. I think as people in the crypto space start to learn more about how games are monetized and how games work they'll actually be able to make sustainable play to earn systems that actually you don't see the users going right i've got 500 coins in the game i'm going to cash out and get 500 dollars. they want to spend that you know those coins in the game and that is how you keep a sustainable system because your people are putting money in and hoping to get more out, then you know, you're always hoping that someone else is gonna jump in. So I, I definitely see a future in uh, the GameFi space. It's just one of those things where the people that are making stuff at the moment haven't really perfected how things are done. They don't really, you know, like you said earlier with mismanagement, they're mismanaging things. And you know, as the space grows, things will get better. But for now, we're just in this kind of like weird learning state but I, I personally find the space fun, interesting, you know, it's very modern, very unique. And, you know, I like the, the crowd of people that have kind of gathered around the, the crypto campfire, as it were, and are, you know, telling their stories and doing their things. I'm curious as well, actually, because, you know, I've asked you countless questions now. I feel like I have a, a good understanding of you as a person and how you've operated your business. But you seem happy as a person. And I'm curious, <laughs> what brings you joy in your line of work or in what you're currently doing? What makes you happy about it? 
So as I mentioned before, uh, doing a startup is definitely a huge amount of responsibility, right? So what makes it worth it? Besides the fact that, hey, look, you can potentially get a unicorn you know, valuation or whatever, is the fact that you just have a lot more control in your life, right? And that's actually one of the basic tenets of what uh, drives uh, happiness. Or rather, uh, if you go in a more philosophical uh, uh, perspective, the opposite, right? So if you go to Buddhism scriptures, suffering, right, is, is really from the fact that you have to deal with things you cannot control. Right? That makes you unhappy because you cannot control with it. And therefore, the outcome is not uh, what you want, regardless of whether it's good or bad. Right? And that drives a lot of suffering. So the idea here is that when we're doing a startup, there is a lot more responsibility. There's a lot of things you can go wrong. And you're a lot more vulnerable in the sense that uh, you know, you're kind of like a little small leaf within the, the currents. Right? But you have more control in your environment. You choose who you associate with. Right? You choose what projects you work with. You choose the direction. So there's more agency in your life. And that's exactly the same thing with blockchain technology. You can choose. There's more agency and control over your finances. That doesn't mean you make the best decisions, but you have the control to do certain things that you were not able to do before because other people told you that you were not allowed to do it, right? And of course, you know, if you're lucky and you're born uh, in a well-developed country, you have Functioning financial services is great, but that's not definitely like a skill to be born in the United States or something like that, right? So what happens if you are in a regime that's just not functional, right? Wouldn't you want an alternative that give you more agency on your life so that you can protect the things that are meaningful to you, right? And so that's the, the thing. Uh, we have more control of our lives now, and we're building a project that hopefully brings more control to other people's finances, and enable them to do more things in their life, right? Uh, obviously, the other thing is that I have family, which means that I, I feel like it's not just that I'm doing a startup, you know, 24-7. It's that what's anchoring me is that, like, uh, there is a uh, family that's growing, and that's also an up-only exercise, right? Like, regardless of what you do in the startup, uh, every day that your kid is growing up or learning a new word, doing something different, that is a moment for me, at least, that brings me joy. So I, I feel like regardless of whether or not like all of my endeavors or crazy ideas come to fruition, at the very least, this is one aspect of my life that I put in my best effort into and I can see the, the results. Um, and so it doesn't have to be particularly goal oriented. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I need to do X, Y, Z, accomplish X, Y, Z, get so many followers. But it's just about, about like, hey, what is it to be your individual? What is it to be in control of your life? Right. And obviously, there are all things that you cannot control. And the more you're able to uh, have that balance between uh, deciding what you want to do versus not do, that's where you reduce a lot of conflicts in your life. And ideally, I wouldn't even say happiness, but it also bring you more peace. Right. So that you feel confident that you can keep going forward regardless of what happens. Where can the people find you and Pennyworks online? Uh, very straightforward. Uh, website, pennyworks.com. We're also on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Pennyworks, uh, you know, just like DreamWorks, but with pennies. Uh, so uh, pretty easy to find us. And uh, we are a small company, so just feel free to ping us. And uh, maybe you'll get a, a response from myself and my co-founder. Thank you for listening to People Explain. New episodes come out every Monday. 
We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.